Please turn with me in your uh, Bibles uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19 for our Old Testament lessons. Two short passages that help summarize, according to our Lord's own testimony in Matthew 22, the sum of the whole law. I think it's important that we give our attention to that whole context as we consider the first of these uh, so-called fruit of the Spirit uh, in our sermon text this morning. So our first Old Testament reading is Deuteronomy chapter 6, just a few short verses, verses 4 to 9, and then Leviticus 19, verses 11 to 18. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of these commandments when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To summarize the first and greatest commandment, the second is like it, as our Lord tells us. In Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, as Moses, under inspiration of the Spirit, says this, You shall not steal nor shall you deal falsely, nor shall you lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse or mock a deaf man. Or place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor shall you defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Rather, what is it that you should do? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now turning with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As Paul himself summarizes the nature of love in a passage I think we're so familiar with that we hear at so many weddings. It speaks of the nature of love, but a nature concerning love that goes beyond the bounds of mere, uh, one's mere love for one's spouse. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy nor does it boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rather it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. 
love never ends. And of course, our sermon text this morning from Galatians chapter 5, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and against love, or and against such things, there is no law. In other words, love is not against the law. Let us go before the Lord as we pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we give attention to your word this morning, and we recognize the, the depths of the riches of your love for us and the duty that you have called us to walk therein, we ask that you would uh, illuminate our hearts and strengthen us that we might love as you have loved. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what is love? If we were to consult the great oracle that is popular culture, I think we'll find ourselves uh, with a litany of differing opinions. Uh, Some pop singers sing of the necessity of love. According to Lennon and McCartney, love is in fact all that you need. Others still will sing of the duration of love. Marvin Gaye says there's no mountain high enough uh, to describe the depths of his love and to keep him away from you. Sounds kind of creepy in my opinion. Randy Travis tells us that his love is deeper than the holler. Other singers sing of not just the power, or not just the duration of love, but love's power. According to Huey Lewis, uh, power, the power of love is a mysterious thing, powerful enough to make one man weep and another man sing. For Johnny Cash, love is a burning thing that binds a man to his wild desire. Still others are more cynical or perhaps even more useless. Taylor Swift tells us nothing useful about the nature of love. Foreigner does not even know what love is, but it wants you to show him. Pet Benatar tells us that love is simply a battlefield. And Bob Dylan, love is nothing more than a warm embrace in the midst of the storm. And if we were to define love only according uh, to Hollywood, to Motown, or Muscle Shoals, all we could really conclude is that warm is that love is little more than a warm feeling between teenage lovers, ill-equipped to handle the harsh realities of this present life. The songs we hear on the radio only glorify and revel in the benefits of a certain kind of love, but they rarely ever elaborate on the duties of love. Even between lovers, love seems to be fleeting. If we could, I think, summarize all love songs that we hear on the radio, it's either one of two things, that love is forever, or the anger and frustration one feels when they find out that no, it is not when their lover has betrayed them. And even still, amidst all the various songs that play ad nauseum, nobody ever seems to write about loving their enemies. When was the last time you heard something about that on the Billboard Top 100? G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton says it is easy to love somebody across the globe, somebody you've never met, because you don't actually have to love them. All you have to do is feel the warm fuzzy for them. Much harder is it to love your neighbor, uh, somebody you have to share a picket fence with. If you live in an apartment complex, somebody you have to share a wall with, and as they stay up too late one night blaring the TV, you recognize how hard it is to love your neighbor and how much easier it is to imagine loving somebody on the other end of the globe. How much greater is God's love towards sinners? See, what Scripture tells us concerning the love of God shatters all of our popular dreams and expectations that here is one who would reconcile not 
friends because friends don't need to be reconciled. Here is one who would reconcile his enemies and would do so by giving up his beloved son to die in our place. The Scripture tells us not only of the God who loves, but now calls upon us to love even as God loves us. To love not only our closest friends, but our fiercest enemies. And I think we all recognize this is something that can only be done by the Spirit's work in our hearts, which is the very thing which Paul speaks of here in Galatians 5. I don't think it's possible for us to give a comprehensive treatment of what the Bible says about love. Um, it's just not possible. Paul himself says this is the sum of the whole law. And so I'm not going to even try to give a comprehensive treatment, but I would like us to tease out at least three facets of love this morning uh, as it bears down upon the point Paul is trying to make that the Spirit works in our heart that we might love one another. So consider three aspects this morning. First, we'll consider the source of love. Secondly, we'll consider the duties of love. And finally, we'll consider the objects of love. First, we'll consider the source of love. That source is, in fact, God himself. Scripture, in fact, declares God is love. If you are not familiar with the Bible, I commend to you this as your starting point. The Bible does not merely say that God is loving, that he loves every now and again from time to time. Rather, God is love itself. Love is not something that is accidental to his nature, like a coat one can uh, put on or take off. It is not a superficial feature that can be added or diminished. God cannot love more than he does love, nor can he love any less than he loves It is essential to his nature. So from the outset, I think we must banish that thought that God is somehow some some cold-hearted, malevolent deity that is perched atop of a cloud eager to strike a thunderbolt upon our heads at the slightest misstep. What is the declaration that the Lord gives to Moses even at Sinai? The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that though our sins merit God's wrath, yet God delights to save sinners. Paul tells us that God is not anemic, but rather that He is rich in mercy, and that mercy finds its source in His great love by which He has loved us. That such divine love is demonstrated in Christ's death for sinners. That Christ's death is not merely an example of love, though of course it is an example, but Christ's death on the cross pays the penalty for our sin to reckon with the wrath of God that is in fact due us for just reasons, things that we will consider in the coming moments. And yet, Scripture tells us that even while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, God displayed, God demonstrated His love towards us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that He could redeem sinners and receive them as sons. I think we find that such a love differs from the love of modern poets and pop singers. 
You know, in 1518 in Heidelberg, Germany, Martin Luther's giving what was known as a disputation, an academic debate. Um, but here he drives home a very important point as he teases out the difference between God's love and man's love. Uh, Luther says that we have this, this tendency to treat God, as it were, as the jolly green giant. as simply a bigger version of ourselves. Uh, we think we understand what love is, and so we impute God as simply having a bitter, bigger version of that. But Luther reminds us, no, it's not just that God's love is bigger, it's qualitatively of a different sort. And Luther does so by making two particular statements. The first is this, that the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Secondly, he says, the love of man. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. What does Luther mean by that? What is it that Luther's getting at in this important biblical distinction? I think we should take a a step back and consider the nature of human love. Perhaps the most obvious example is the love of of a man and a woman. What is it that causes a man to love a woman? Typically, at least not initially, it's not for selfless reasons. The guy's not walking down the street, looks at a girl across the road and says, huh, I'd like to go to a Bible study with her. Rather, what does he say? Hubba hubba. It's not necessarily something sinful. That's Adam's response to Eve in the garden, perfectly natural. But such is the case of ordinary human love. What drives a man to a woman and a woman to a man is that they find something attractive in the other. Be it their warm personality, uh, their looks, or anything else. But Luther's point is this, that's human love, but that's not divine love. Humans love because they find something attractive in the other person. There is something in that other person that draws them uh, to themselves. But God, His love is different. God does not find anything lovely in us. The Bible tells us that as sinners, we were objects of His wrath even down to our deepest affections. We love the things that God hates. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, from man's youth, his thoughts are only on evil continually. God does not look down from heaven and go, ah, there's Billy Bob. Here's something I can work with. There's something, there's a little bit of good in him. Uh, So I'll set my affection on him, but not, not Jimbo over here. Because he's wicked. No, we find that the whole human race has been enslaved and ensnared into sin and wretchedness. And so God's love consists in this, that he does not find something lovely in us. Rather, he creates something lovely in us. God does what he wants, and he sets his affection on a particular individual and says, I am going to make you mine. So I see as Lewis refers to the Lord as the hound of heaven, the one who seeks out the unlovely, the one who seeks out the miserable, and now he begins to work by creating something lovely in us. He works faith in our hearts and so unites us to Christ by faith in our effectual calling. It's one of the things that we have considered in Paul's second letter to Corinth over the past several months. In other words, what God does is he loves the unlovable. But God does not leave them in an unlovely state. He sets their affection on him and so begins to work in their hearts. He declares them to be righteous, but then begins to make them righteous as well. 
God never had to do such a thing. It is utterly selfless. He is utterly self-giving. God did not need to do it. God, it's not as though God were lonely trying to make friends somehow. Rather, what Scripture tells us is that God loves to do it. God loves to save sinners. Such is the divine pattern of love. John the Apostle says this, we know love by this very thing, that Christ laid down His life for us. And now it establishes a pattern. Therefore, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, love is not merely emotive. It's not merely uh, an affect, though it, it certainly includes that. It also is active. It is an action. It is more than a feeling. That the love of God consists in His deep abiding affection for His people, but the way in which He stoops to save sinners, and now He calls us to mirror that same act of love in loving sinners and enemies around us. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 2. He says, Now that I have been crucified with Christ, it is Christ who lives in me. Christ, the very one who loved me and gave Himself for me, now lives through me. And calls me to walk in that love for sinners even as He loved me. Christ has given us His Spirit who now enables us to love our neighbor as our self. The very sum of the moral law. Just as Paul tells the church of Ephesus, therefore, in light of all these things, imitate God. It's a tall order. How are we to do so? By walking in love just as Christ also has loved you. See, the pattern is set before us. We are to abide in the love of Christ, to contemplate the great love God has shown us, and then uh, grow in that love towards one another. And so now we move to our second point as we consider the duties of love. See, God's love for us sets the pattern and the paradigm for how we should love one another. Right? It entails particular duties of selflessness, kindness, and long-suffering things we'll consider in the coming weeks. See, love is more than that merely superficial, oh, bless your heart. Rather, it runs through the core of who we are. It consists of our affections towards one another. It consists in our thoughts towards one another the things that we say about and to one another, the stories that we entertain uh, about one another, and the things that we do for one another. See, this is not a peripheral feature of the Christian faith. Rather, it is central. Christ, in fact, tells us that the world we will know that we are His disciples. How? By our love. Not as the world loves, but as God Himself loves Four times in the New Testament, it says this, love fulfills the law. That love and law are not seen to be in contradiction to one another. That love is not legalism. It's not legalism not to commit adultery. It is not legalism not to murder. 
It is legalism to think that those things merit God's favor. But now that we have been freely justified by God's grace, saved by grace alone through faith alone, He calls us to walk in this particular pattern and so love our neighbor as ourselves. What does it mean to love God? You hear this phrase in uh, um, the, the world around us, love is love. Well, that doesn't really explain anything, right? If you don't know what a heffalump is and somebody asks you, what is a heffalump? You go, well, a heffalump is a heffalump. That doesn't really really describe what a heffalump is. It doesn't help you out. So too is the definition of love. What is love? And you go, well, love is love, man. That has not helped me out at all. You know, Christ, as our great prophet, speaks to us and reminds us and teaches us what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we find the summary of those duties and what it means to love in the Ten Commandments. What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? Of course, many people in Jesus' own day would begin to uh, try to split hairs. Well, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Anyone around you, not just uh, the people who sit in the same kind of socioeconomic tax bracket as you, or have the same skin color as you, or the same political leanings as you, As we have all been made in the image of God, so we are all neighbors to one another. And so as the Ten Commandments tell us, they fill out for us in descriptive fashion what it means to love our neighbor. It means to honor our father and our mother. In other words, to honor those in authority over us, be it if you're a wife, to honor your husband, if you are a child, to honor your parents as citizens to honor the government even when uh, we don't want to. As an employee, to honor your employer. It also means to care for those who have been trusted to us. Be it your wife, your children, or your employees. To love somebody means don't murder them. Not just with a weapon, but even with your tongue. Jesus says, you've heard it with said, you shall not murder I tell you, anyone who harbors anger in his heart or calls his brother a fool is liable to the fires of hell. Guns are not the only things that kill people. Our tongues do as well, James tells us. What does it mean to love one another? It means to guard our tongue. Love means... and entails sexual fidelity to one's wife, not just with your body, but also your deepest affections. Again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Love does not simply consist in those outward actions, but our inner affections. Love rules out and thrusts out malice and lust. It repudiates theft from your neighbor. Love demands that you cease slandering those about you or even coveting the possessions of those around you. It calls us to rejoice in the triumphs of those around us, to mourn with our neighbor in his losses, to bear with him in his infirmities, and to seek to restore him in his failings and transgressions. As we heard in 1 Corinthians 13 earlier this morning, love does not rejoice in one's failures. But it rather does seek to correct him in his transgressions. Right? Love does not blog about his mess-ups. 
but also does not avoid the difficult truths. Remember Leviticus chapter 11, which we heard earlier, you should not bear vengeance against your neighbor who has wronged you. You should not be a, go about as a slander among the people of your neighbor who has wronged you. You should not bear a grudge in your heart against your neighbor who has wronged you, but you shall reprove him. You shall go to him to confront the one who has wronged you in a particular manner is the very definition of what it means to love. We're not just simply loving in the abstract where we're assuming everybody is nice, decent people. Here, Scripture calls us uh, to love even when it is painful. To love even those who sin against us. Proverbs tells us faithful and loving are the wounds of a friend. And it is the same love that covers a multitude of sins. It is one, it is a kind of love that is not afraid to confront in private one who has wronged you, but also is more than willing to cover the sins of that same person. In long suffering and kind forbearance. You see, in the kingdom of God, there's no room for passive, aggressive behavior. Rather, we are to love even as Christ has loved us. So ought also we, also we love, we are to love one another. See, God's law and God's love are not at odds with one another. Rather, love is the fulfillment of the law. A law does not, a love does not mock the deaf, the dumb, or the blind. Rather, it seeks their well-being. Love does not show partiality in judgment. As we heard in Leviticus 11, that you're not supposed to show partiality to the poor or to the great, but rather you shall judge impartially according to the standards of judgment and righteousness. Love defends the defenseless. What is the thing that God loves? He is the God who cares for the poor, the defenseless, and the widow. Uh, to stand up for uh, those who are being bullied against, even as it calls the guilty to repentance. We are called to love in matter as well as in our manner. To rebuke, but to do so in a spirit of gentleness and kindness. To provoke one another unto good works, as Hebrews tells us. Even God's anger should be seen as a facet of his love. But these things are not in contradiction with one another. If somebody were to break into your home in the middle of the night and try to attack your wife or your children, you would do all you can to stop them. It's not because you hate, but it's precisely because you love. And here we are told in Scripture of Christ as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, who cares for his sheep, who protects the defenseless. We are called even not just to love the things that the Lord loves, but to hate what He hates. Not to be apathetic towards injustice. Even the final judgment should be seen as a facet of God's love, where on a given day, a day that we do not know when it will take place, the Lord will stand up, as it were, and say, enough is enough. He will call the world to account. It's good news for those who have been sinned against, and it is bad, no, bad news for those who have sinned against others and have failed to repent. Such is the difficult doctrine of the love of God. Love is more than a feeling, but it gives to one in need. Leads us to our final point as we consider the objects of our love. Here we see that uh, the nature of love, as Scripture defines it, is better described not in uh, uh, love poems or sonnets that we hear around us these days, but in terms of self-sacrifice and duty. 
I hope this is a, a, an obvious assertion that the way in which you love your wife is going to look different from the way in which you love uh, a random person that you see in the grocery store. It's going to look different from the way in which you love your coworkers or your neighbors or your children. Even as God has commanded us to love everyone, uh, the way in which it spells itself out in its particularities is going to differ based off that person's relationship to you. Our loves must be properly ordered. Even our love towards God is different from our love towards one another. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and nothing should come close. Jesus says that you know, even your, your, your love for your own wife, in comparison to your love for God, should look like hatred. Anyone who does not uh, adhere to this, Jesus says, cannot be my disciple. Such is the nature of discipleship. Our loves must be properly ordered. I think it's really fascinating, the first mention of the, the first use of the word love in the Bible. Do you know where it takes place? Genesis chapter 22, where the Lord appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, burn him at the altar. It tells us that even our deepest earthly loves must be subjugated and ordered under a proper love for our great God and King. I think it's important. Deuteronomy 13 tells us this. Not to even let your closest companions try to draw you away. Uh, Moses says this. He says, look, even if you're the wife whom your soul loves comes and whispers to you and says, hey, let's go pursue other gods today. Moses says you're not to put up with their shenanigans love for God takes place first and foremost. But even among the, our love for men, the, we find these loves are properly ordered. This is why what we call the household codes in the New Testament are so important. You look at the second half of Ephesians, you look at um, the second half of Colossians, you look at the, the middle portion of 1 Peter, what, is the, what are these exhortations that we find? Husbands, this is how you're to love your wives. Wives, this is how you're to love your husbands. Children, towards parents. Parents, towards children. Masters to slaves. Slaves to masters. There's a proper uh, decorum in how we are called to love one another in our particular uh, duties and callings. Even Paul tells uh, the, the older men that they are to be a model of godliness in faith and love towards the younger. And, to, and, and, and Paul tells the younger children in the congregation to flee youthful lusts and rather pursue love. Uh, these are the various duties that we have, and it plays itself out in a variety of particularities. And I think loving your family or loving close friends, uh, though great at times, we, I think we all recognize it could be very difficult if you uh, live in close quarters with somebody. You know, Scripture does not st stop there. Jesus himself says, even the tax collectors get this, that you're supposed to love people who love you back. The Bible ups the ante. For those who want to be a disciple of Christ, it goes even one step further. You're not only supposed to love those who love you back in your own family relations, in your own kind of network of friends, but you're also to love your enemies. To do good to them and to lend even to them, expecting nothing in return, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. 
Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, I'm telling you, that is not a proper exposition of the law. Rather, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's the kind of love that Paul is writing about here to the church of Galatia. And I think it causes us to step back when we see what is required. We go, who is sufficient for these things? And I think it is here that we recognize that this is something that can only be done if the Spirit is at work in our hearts. What kind of man in his right mind could think he could last five minutes loving like Christ loves his enemies? If we were to have our own way, we would pursue all those lesser, those lesser loves, the love of evil, the love of money, the approval of others, the love of the things of this world, the love of our own lives over everything else. But now that the Spirit has been poured into our hearts, we are called to mortify those lusts because we find that those are not loves at all. They are, in fact, lusts that run contrary to the Spirit. That's what we considered last week in Galatians 5, 16 and following. They run contrary to the nature of love. Here we find that the love uh, that we hear about in pop songs falls far short of the pattern that is set before us, uh, established by the one who is, in fact, love himself. This form of Christian love is something that we could perhaps call charity hopefully to distinguish the nature of our duties from uh, the way in which the world around us speaks of love. And it consists in this, not simply loving the lovely, but loving the wretched and underserving, because we too were wretched and underserving. Objects of God's wrath, yet because of the great love with which God loved us, He set His affection on us and so began to work faith in our hearts, That it is His kindness that has led us to repentance. And so now He calls us to show that same pattern of love. To remain steadfast in love under trial. To cultivate this kind of virtue that remains unseen and in many respects unheard of in the world around us. With the great prayer and the great hope that through such love, sinners may see that Christ who rules and reigns in our hearts is better than the love of schmaltzy pop songs. And so that by it they might turn from their sin and taste the loving kindness of our great and loving God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word and the pattern that You have set before us. We ask that as we contemplate Your love for us, uh, that we, weak and frail as we are, Uh, that you would use us to love others with the same love you have loved us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.